Welcome to Cold Cases with Cassie, the podcast where we unravel the mysteries and the stories that remained etched in the sands of time. I'm your host, Cassie, and today we dive deeper into the case of Kimberly Lewisell. It was a true privilege to sit down for an interview with Detective Sergeant Larry Rothman. As I walked up to the door of the building where we were meeting, I was honestly a little nervous, but upon meeting Detective Rothman, I felt an immediate sense of relief. Not only was he a very kind person, he reminded me a little bit of my father. Although I don't think he appreciated me telling him that, considering he was a bit younger than my dad, I felt as though I could have sat there for hours chatting with him. And honestly, we almost did. After the interview, we sat and chatted for another hour or so. So please give me some slack considering this was my first ever interview. I promise I will grow as this podcast grows. So here it goes. I am here with Detective Larry Rothman. And I am going to start off by asking, do you care if I call you Larry or is that too um, personal? Should I call you Detective Rothman? That's fine. You can call me Larry. It's fine. Larry. Larry. Do you mind telling me what your job title is and what you do? I'm a detective sergeant with the Michigan State Police, and I'm in charge of our first district cold case unit. Awesome. And can you tell me where, how you got to this point in your career? I have close to 25 years in the department, so I started out at the Jackson Post for about 10 years. Uh, I worked in our computer crimes unit, our audio-video unit. I was a post detective uh, out of the Monroe Post for about seven years, and during that time, uh, I was asked to create a cold case unit in our district. That's kind of put me where I'm at here. Amazing. We love that. Okay, so how long have you been the lead detective? Did you say that? As Um, far as the cold case unit? Yeah. I've been here. We actually established the unit during COVID in 2020. Of course, it was a little bit difficult meeting with with people during COVID, so we had to do a lot of things on Zoom and Teams and things like that. I can imagine that would be very difficult. Okay, so I'm going to talk about like Kim's case. And mm-hmm. if you don't know, just let me know. So I saw miss mixed information the day that Kim left school and I wasn't sure they said, some said like she was suspended. Some said that she was dropped out or that she just like left school. Do you know if she was like suspended that day or? I don't even believe she went to school that day. You don't think she even went? No, I, I think she, uh, if I remember right, uh, talking to her sister uh, that she had she had wanted to uh, kind of skip school that and, and head to her boyfriend's house. Yeah, Cindy told me that she, they got dropped off at school. They like took the bus there, but then Kim went to correct her classroom. So you you think she just didn't even go? I don't believe she went to school that okay. day. Okay, all right. And then was there any information on how she actually got to Bob's house that day on the eighteenth? Other than we. Hitchhiking. I mean, hitchhiking. I believe that's. I don't. There was no one in the case file or no information to support that she was picked up uh, by anybody that she knew or transported there, or uh, so it was probably hitchhiking. Okay. Do you know what Kim and Bob did on the nineteenth, which was the day after she left? I know this isn't super important pertaining to the case now that it's solved, but I feel like it's just like a gap in my storyline right now. I don't really know what they did. Um, I know they were hanging out at the house. Bob had a job. You know, they, he had to go to, and, and I think she was just hanging out there with her family, and or Bob's family. That was the 20th when he went to his job, or was it? Correct. Even the 19th. I think the they 19th were just, he I think they were just hanging out. There's no okay. information that we know of as far as what they did or okay. where they were at or All right. things yeah. like that. 
I did not find anything on that. I did see that there was a rumor, though, that Kim was at a party on 8 Mile, like, at a trailer park sometime in the time that she was disappeared. Do you know anything about that or... There's no evidence to support that fact. And, you know, whenever you're looking at cold cases, of course, everybody comes out of the woodwork sharing their theories and their ideas, which are good on one hand because yeah. uh, we need information to be able to solve cases. But on the other hand, a lot of time it leads us down avenues that, that waste totally. a lot of time and, and manpower and resources. So Okay, yes. Okay, so there was also a letter that Kim wrote that you ended up sending to Cindy, actually, after she had been requesting to see that letter for so long. And I know that she was super appreciative Mm, that's not the word. Appreciative. I think that's the word. That's the word. <laughs> yes, I'm glad you said it because I can't say it either. I know. It's a hard one um, that you sent that over to her. But do you know when that letter was found? Was it like shortly after she went missing? Was it not until like years down the road? I believe that letter was found right when when she went missing. And I, I think Bob's family or Bob probably gave that to authorities back then. Okay. Okay. Um, let's see where we are at. Okay, so did they know, or did they just keep that um, hidden, the information about her genes? Because she had written in the letter that Michael and Gary signed her Levi jeans, so that's what she was possibly wearing when she went missing. Was that just recently released, or was that something they knew from, like, day one, or, like... That was information probably from day one that they knew. You know, in these investigations, you never reveal everything that you have for a lot of different reasons. Okay. I had a feeling that maybe it was just, like, kept so that they would have something to keep. Or... Well, most of, most of the time when you release information on a homicide case, you release information that you want the public to know. And then the information uh, you don't release is something that the suspect would only know. Okay. So when you interview people later on and they provide information that wasn't released in the media. Yeah. Then, yeah, th there's a reason why they have that information. They may be involved in the homicide or in the case in okay. some way. Um, was she ever found, like, were any of her personal belongings ever found? Because I heard that she was found completely nude with, like, nothing around her, but I don't know how true that is. Yeah, none of her personal belongings were found at the scene. Okay. Um, do you think that anything could have been done differently in the initial investigation? You know, whenever you have a case like this and you're looking back 40 years, you have to put yourself in the shoes of the investigators in 1982. Yeah. Right. So if, if we're looking at a homicide today, of course, we're thinking cell phones, we're thinking all these things. Right. Yeah. So being able to step back in 1982 and realize what your resources were back then, I think there's always things that you can do better. Mm -hmm. So even in the cases today, uh, even a lot of my cases that I had, uh, I look back and look and I've man, I should have done this and yeah. I should have done that. Even though the case has turned out well, there's always things that you're going to miss just because of the circumstances of the case, uh, you know, the time, all those things. You're going to miss something. So looking back, um, there's things that probably could have been done, but I say that with a caveat of the investigators back then did everything that they knew how to do back then. Okay. So um, I wouldn't for one second uh, say that an investigator – screwed up the case right. or, you know, forgot something or, or did something to damage the case. They were doing everything that they possibly could back then to solve Kim's case. Okay. Um, so when Kim went missing, there was some confusion on the status of Bob and Kim's relationship at that time. Do you know if they were together or broken up at that time? 
Well, the, according to the reports, according to the interviews, uh, Bob had broken up with Kim. Yeah. And, of course, on that day, the 20th, yeah. uh, Bob was leaving to work uh, and basically left Kim there at the house, and she had to come up with her own right way home. of getting home. Okay, so you did kind of think that she was broken up. Did they ever talk to Bob about their relationship status? They did. They Investigators then interviewed Bob, of course, you know, whenever you have a, a missing person or a homicide, your number one suspect is always the husband, boyfriend, or whoever the significant other is at the time, right? Yes. So uh, they interviewed Bob extensively back then, uh, and, you know, he provided some things, uh, the letter and some other things uh, to investigators back then that was that showed his, he was being cooperative at the time. That's good. Okay. So when Kim did end up going missing, and... There was like that three weeks, over three weeks in between the day that she went missing and the day that she was found. Do you know if any investigation was done in between there? Because I know that it sounded like Kim's parents thought that she wasn't a runaway, but the police department kind of was like, hey, she's probably just ran away because she's 16 and a young girl. Yeah, so in the 1980s and even up into the 1990s, um, you know, usually didn't, uh, in order to report a missing person's complaint, someone had to be missing over 24 hours. Okay. And before you could even walk into a police station and say, I want to make a report. This report initially was investi- uh, was reported uh, Kim missing to the Green Oak Township Police yes. Department. I don't believe there was a lot of investigation into Kim's uh, case at that point, where okay. she was at and what she was doing. I think that they did think that she was just a runaway or, or she wanted to run away from home and, and you know, she was going to show up uh, eventually. You know, that's the, uh, we know now, you know, decades later, that we need to take the parents and the people that actually love the victims, their word for it. Uh, they know the victim better than anybody else. Uh, so that's, that's kind of what happened. I, I think she went missing, it was reported, and not a whole lot of work was done uh, to try to locate her. Is it different now that, like, we're in 2023, if somebody reports someone missing, they don't have to wait 24 hours, right? No, they can report it right away. Okay, that's what I thought. So I feel like that's much better. So you don't believe there was any, in, like, investigation done really in between March 20th and April 14th when she was found? Nothing that we found. Okay. So Kim had made four phone calls the day that she went missing at a gas station. Correct. Um, do you know who the phone calls were to? I don't know right offhand. I know okay. I have that in the case file somewhere, um, who she had called. Okay. Because the only one that I found was that maybe it was her brother and he was out of gas and couldn't come and yeah. get her. Yeah. I'm not sure if that was uh, that was a theory or what that was. So um, I know when I talked to Kim's sister, uh, she'd given me the names of the people that Kim had called. Okay. Um, but I don't have those right off the top of my okay, head. Okay, no problem. Do you know if there was any tips that were given to the police when she after she was found? There was. I, with any case, you get a lot of tips. Okay. And Kim's case was no exception. There was a, there was a lot of tips um, reference her, you know, her body being found and whatnot. So, so I also saw, and I think it might have been in maybe the video that you did or with the MSU students that worked on Kim's case. But they said that Charles David Shaw was actually mentioned somewhere in the report. Yeah, I believe two days after Kim's body was found, uh, we had a tip. 
I think it was labeled tip number two, so it would have been the second tip that we would have gotten. Wow. Uh, a gentleman that owned an apartment building, or actually he was the maintenance guy at an apartment building uh, right across the road from the school where Kim's younger sister uh, went to school. Oh, wow. Uh, his name was Charles David Shaw is who he was calling about. He said that Charles uh, had left the apartment in disarray. He had destroyed the apartment. And I'm not sure why he called other than this guy is really weird. He's really, uh, you know, he did a lot of damage to his apartment. You might want to take a look at him. Do you know what kind of damage was done? I don't. He had mentioned that uh, Charles had used a guitar and smashed up everything in the apartment. I was surprised when I heard that because I felt like he was kind of like not anywhere on the radar until Christine Castiglione's case was solved. Well, again, whenever you, you know, we can, we can look back at a case right. and realize, wow, this is, this is our guard. Right yeah. He was right there. And a lot of times that's the case. But yeah. when you're investigating a case and you're in the middle of an investigation, you're having tips. You're having, there's so many things to do at one point that, it's really difficult to, to jump on every little thing like it's a priority. In that case, that tip came in. Charles Shaw, it's just some guy calling saying, hey, this is a weirdo that smashed his apartment building to pieces. Yeah. Um, and at the time, they're like, you know, well, we'll, we'll send somebody out. And they did. They, they did. did. They did. Uh, um, even back then, they were partnered up with Livingston County Sheriff's Department. And uh, Deputy Moore, who is now on the cold case team, retired for Livingston County that helped solve Christine's case. He was the one that actually followed up on on the tip uh, early on wow. and was able to talk to the, the guy that, uh, you know, was a maintenance guy at the building. But uh, he tried to tried to locate Charles Shaw at that point, and he couldn't. And it wasn't his responsibility at that point to yeah. track down Charles David Shaw. His responsibility was to get the information, bring it back to MSP detectives, and MSP detectives were going to look at that information to see if, it's something they should follow up on or not. Okay. Kim was missing for over three weeks, and she showed no signs of malnutrition. According to the autopsy report. Yeah. And, again, that's what we have to go by. We have to go by the reports and, and things. You know, we can't step back. Uh, according to the autopsy report, they said that she looked like she was healthy. She had been eating. I think they even said that she may have had eggs of uh, you know, in her stomach, oh. uh, mentioning that she might have been eating something either uh, the morning that she was passed away or shortly before that. Okay. And then they also said that there was no um, restraints used or no signs of restraints used? As far as restraints as we think of tying people up, yeah. um, she, wa she was beaten. Yes. Uh, so there were signs of, of that. There were signs of sexual assault. There was signs of strangulation. So as far as, you know, what we would think is, is being held captive and tied up, um, we didn't see those. Okay. Yeah. Cause I wondered too, if, cause she had been missing for so long and they said she'd only been dead for four to six days when they found her. Is it a possibility that she was like kept in a freezer or is that like would you notice that on an autopsy well it's just like anything you put in a freezer if it's there long enough and it's not covered up there's freezer burn there's damage to the skin there's things like that okay um you know that that four to six day window or period of time that said that she might have been out there we talked to a forensic anthropologist that's in charge of the uh it's called frost 
it's a, uh, she's not going to want me to tell you this, but it's a body, it's a body farm, but she doesn't like using that term oh, okay. up in Northern Michigan. Okay. And the studies that she done, she said, there's a, there's a chance that Kim may have been out there longer than four to six days oh, really? based on her research. Okay. So, you know, we got the four to six days out of the autopsy. Um, I haven't talked to that medical examiner. I don't know what training that medical examiner has, whether he was a forensic medical examiner or just, uh, you know, just a doctor. Okay. And I say just a doctor because there's two. There's a difference between a forensic medical examiner and someone that can perform an autopsy. Okay. A pathologist. Okay. So we did talk about how Charles, they they didn't find Charles immediately when he was tipped off by the police. No. Okay. And then he had a few run-ins with the law, though, and one was an attempted abduction. Correct. And it says that he only served like two weeks in jail. He Is did, and he was he was uh, on probation. So once okay. he got out of jail, he was put on probation. Do you know what the typical sentencing would be like for someone who tried to abduct someone? Well, that varies. Yeah. Right? It varies from county to county, from prosecutor to prosecutor. So you commit a crime in Washtenaw County, you might get sent to something totally different if you would commit a crime in Livingston County or Eaton County or, or wherever. Okay. It's not unheard of for judges to plea things down or prosecutors to plea things down. And that's what happened in this case. He was actually charged with uh, kidnapping and uh, I think felonious assault maybe. And it was pled down to felonious assault and the kidnapping charge was dismissed. That's crazy. So yeah, what kind of, I should say, where was the DNA found for Charles on Kim? Or was it on Kim or was it on something near the crime scene? Well, that's that's kind of uh, an iffy subject because okay. uh, that uh, I kind of, I would just say it was found on an evidence item that was at the crime scene. Okay. Okay. Do we think that Charles David Shaw was responsible for any other murders besides Christine Castiglione and Kim? Well, I think based on what we know about Charles David Shaw, I think he has the poss the potential of, of being involved in other homicides, other sexual assaults. Mm -hmm. Do we know for certain? No, we don't. Yeah. But given his personality, you know, it, it's pretty fascinating from a criminal justice standpoint. Yeah. Uh, kind of looking at him and, and studying uh, what kind of guy he was and what he was into. Mm -hmm. um, I will say this with pretty much certainty, that if Charles David Shaw would have continued to live, he would have committed similar acts. Totally. There probably would have been more victims and more deaths. So, uh, Kind of bittersweet that he accidentally killed himself. Is that the truth, right? He Sexual it was accident? Ruled, yeah, it was ruled an accident. He was, yeah. found, he was found hanging. Okay. Is, I guess you were talking about having other cold cases that could potentially be good for a podcast. Do you have a suggestion for me? Maybe your top three cases that I could do other episodes? Well, we have uh, we have a case involving uh, Stacy Ross and Maureen Nichols from 1978. Okay. Um, and I know there's a few things online. Uh, they were camping at uh, Pagoras Park, uh, just north of Lansing. Okay. And they were abducted and their bodies were found uh, days and weeks later. Yeah. And that's a case that... Uh, you know, investigators think that's always a chance of solving. Okay. And, of course, uh, Ruth uh, Postiff from 1973. 
but we have in our unit and our unit covers nine counties we have over 60 unsolved homicides okay just in just in those nine counties wow okay and, and how many in michigan I know statewide you involving the state police uh, we have well over 300 300 wow. and that's not including all of the local police departments the sheriff's departments that's just state police cold case homicides wow that's not in you know, that's not including sexual assaults, not including a bunch of other crimes. That's crazy. Okay, um, I feel like that's all the questions that I have. Hopefully I didn't miss any. Do you have any questions for me, or do you have anything to add? Well, I'd, I'd like to add that the reason that we are able to to solve this case is, is twofold. First and foremost, the Livingston County Sheriff's Department, Detective uh, Matt Young, and their cold case team, what they were able to do with forensic genealogy and things on Christine Castiglione's case is a direct result of how we were able to link those cases together and ultimately close Kim Lucell's case. During that time, Michigan State University interns were here working on Kim's case, was organizing the case file. We did a complete property audit on her case. So we were able to be in a position to when we got that information from Livingston County, we were able to run with that information because we knew it, we had it, it was organized. We were able to meet with a lab and get that stuff tested and 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 uh, get the result that we got. And I, uh, I believe in God and I think it's an actual miracle that we were able to do that because uh, there's things that happened in that case, evidence that was uh, lost. Yeah. Uh, so we were really uh, praying and grasping that straws of as far as are we going to find anything uh, to be able to link this case. Uh, Charles David Shaw, um, after we met with Livingston County, became our prime suspect even before the DNA. Yeah. Uh, a lot of circumstantial evidence evidence puts him in the area. His his previous crime uh, in Fowlerville, uh, Christine uh, Castiglione's case, uh, those type of people, they have a pattern of behavior. Right? Yeah. We see that in serial killers. We see that in a lot of things. Totally. And when you see that pattern of behavior, you start looking around and seeing the victims that are disappearing, the, the homicides that are in that area, and you start seeing those patterns show up in different cases. And when you talk about earlier about do we think Charles David Shaw is responsible for any other homicides? Uh, one thing that we do is we look at the other homicides and say, is there any pattern of behavior that matches Charles David Shaw? And there is some. Yeah. Whether he did it or not, we haven't been able to prove that. Uh, but those are cases that we're looking at to see if he was involved in those. That's really cool. Anything else? I think that's it. I think that's it. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. Also, I wanted to mention how thankful Cindy was for you. Um, she literally had so much nice things to say about you, and she was she told me that she thought it got into your hands for a reason. So um, I know that she's very thankful. So, well, I, I I agree with her for this uh, for this is because uh, again I believe in God, so I think God had a has a has a part to play. And I know other people can wonder, well, if, you know, if God was involved in this, why did this happen in the first place? And those are questions that are always going to be you know lingering. But at the end of the day. Uh, it took a miracle to close this case. Totally. It's been open for 40 years, and it wasn't by happenstance that uh, Livingston County got their information, and we were able to uh, piggyback on that and 
and uh, there's no feeling like being able to sit down with a family. And it's a bittersweet feeling. It's not like you just won a football game and you're cheering and you're jumping up and down because mm -hmm. they lost someone that was so special to them. Mm -hmm. And the only little bit of closure that we can give them is we found out who did it. So you don't have to wonder anymore about who did it. But they still lost Kim, uh, you know, and that's uh, it's bittersweet information to give a family. Yeah. You know, you much rather give them happy information that we found Kim alive and things like that. But uh, given what we have, given what we did and what we were up against, I think that's the best result of what we could provide for the Lewis L family. Yes. Well, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you. Um, yeah, that was so great. But I feel like I have so many more questions now. Like, I want to know where she was kept. Was she kept at the apartment place? And if so, like, how did no one hear her? And is that why he destroyed his apartment is because she was there and he was trying to destroy evidence. It didn't really sound like he was trying to, like, burn anything, though. And, like, also, did he pick her up from South Lyon? Like, did she get a ride from Redford to South Lyon and then find her? Or was it more of, like, he was in Redford and then ended up picking her up in Redford and drove her all the way I have no idea. I just have so many more questions, and the only people who could possibly answer these are, unfortunately, Kimberly herself or Charles David Shaw. Although I have a million questions, that does conclude my interview with Detective Rothman. It was so amazing getting to know him and talking with him. He was so nice and so generous for giving me some time with him. If you guys have any questions, please let me know. And maybe there is some that I can reach out to Detective Rothman and ask him also if there's something I didn't cover or I missed. Either way, thank you guys so much for listening. And please give me a follow on Cold Cases with Cassie on Instagram and Facebook and wherever you listen. Thank you.